Well, please turn to Nehemiah chapter 4, which is page 488, 488 of the Church Bibles, as we continue uh, this series in the book of Nehemiah, a series that we began a few weeks ago, designed uh, really, and this is what I think Nehemiah does for us, to, to help us see from the Scriptures what we as a church are doing this year, what we are about in 2009. The last couple of weeks we've seen that essentially we are above all things about building. We're continuing a project that began on this hill some 170 years ago. We are building a city on this hill. The very city that Jesus speaks of in Matthew chapter 5 when he says of his people, people like us, you are the light of the world, you are the city on a hill. And two weeks ago we saw where that project must begin. It begins with a broken heart for our city and a bended knee. A heart that sees what Nehemiah saw when he looked around Jerusalem. Trouble, disgrace and insecurity as we see in Sheffield. And seeing that he bent the knee as we need to bend the knee before God's throne of grace. Bringing this troubled city before him and calling on his favour and his glory to fall on this city. Last week we we had that wonderful picture in Nehemiah 3 of of what it takes to actually start the project of building that city. Not only does it take a heart for the city and prayer for the city, but it takes a fellowship of builders working side by side building this city on the very foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ. A work that is shaped by the word of his grace. A work that is for his glory alone and is reliant on his favour. It's what we saw last week, this amazing picture of what that looks like when we are about that building project together. And when such a work is undertaken, what we have seen in recent weeks, when God builds his church, when he builds this city on a hill, he dwells with us there. He is at the heart of absolutely everything we do. This is the place where he is worshipped, where we delight in his goodness together, where his word is heard and honoured where together we aim to live lives that are radically different from the city around us, lives that show how good our God is, how kind his word to us is. And when you see those things, you start to see the wonder of what we are in on together in 2009, what we are about this year as we have been for some 170 years before. But as we continue to look at Nehemiah's journal of the building project some 2,500 years earlier, What he does for us next is he starts to give us a realistic picture of the context, the environment in which we are about this project, building this city. If you can remember back to Nehemiah chapter 1, we saw Nehemiah pray, calling upon God's favour. And the reason he was calling upon God's favour is he knew that he was living in an area utterly opposed to that sort of project. He was about to come before the king who had already said there would be no building project in Jerusalem, no walls would be rebuilt. And we too know that of our city. Our city is marked by self-rule and self-determination. And so as we proclaim the gospel to a city like that, a gospel that says the king has come, the true king, surrender, it shouldn't surprise us that that gospel is met with opposition at every turn, in schools, in workplaces, in the streets, in governments, in our families and amongst our friends. As it was for Nehemiah, so it is for us. As it was for the Lord Jesus, so it is for those who serve him. The context we are about this project in together is an environment of opposition. And that's what uh, Nehemiah 4 is going to show us. 
And as we look at it together, I want you to notice just how baffling this opposition is. The word of grace that we bring to the city of Sheffield, the gospel, comes to a city like ours, a city that is marked with trouble and shame and insecurity and it comes with news of peace, of no shame in Christ and of no fear because of the hope he offers. The gospel is news of welfare for a destitute city. It is good news. And yet look what happens when that news comes to a city like ours. Have a look back in chapter 2 verse 10. This is where we see the opposition starting to take shape. Chapter 2 verse 10, when Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. Their response to the news is indignation. Who would think that this city needs welfare? They're amazed that someone would be about this work. I mean, it seems a pointless work to them. We're not in trouble, we're not in disgrace, we're not insecure. Who would think we need this? The picture as as it goes on in chapter 2 and then into chapter 4 is of a group that is growing uncertain, not sure what to make of this project that has begun on the hill under Nehemiah's leadership, watching as the city does take shape but feeling increasingly ill at ease as this new building appears in the neighbourhood. And so the opposition builds. And really at the heart of the opposition is unbelief. That's what 2 verse 10 is about, failure to believe that God is about the welfare of the city. Failure to believe he is committed to the good of this world, this city. And that shouldn't surprise us because we live in a world and in a city that has exchanged, according to Romans 1, the truth of God for a lie. A world that has believed Satan, the father of lies, from Eden onwards when he said to us, God is not committed to your welfare. You can't trust him. The only one who can secure your good, your welfare, is you. And so unbelief shouldn't surprise us. But it doesn't make it easy to deal with. And Nehemiah 4 helps us to see the type of opposition we're going to face as we build this city on the hill. And really there are two sorts that Nehemiah 4 speaks of. The first you see in verses 1 to 3. Unbelief opposition that expresses itself in human thinking. Have a look at verse 1 of chapter 4. When Sanballat heard that they were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews and in the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, he said, what are those feeble Jews doing? Will they restore the wall? Will they offer sacrifices? Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life? from those heaps of rubble burnt as they are. Question after question designed to expose the ridiculous nature of this project. This feeble city, this vain attempt to restore Jerusalem, they actually think this is going to make a difference. And is that not how again and again the Christian community is betrayed in our media and in films and even now on buses? We are a pathetic lot. Our world gets used to grand projects falling flat, coming to nothing. And so the Christian project, this city on a hill built on the Lord Jesus Christ, is just another one. You've seen it in recent years with these big, bold projects designed to change big things. You saw it with Live 8 that was going to end world poverty. A bunch of rock stars getting together to sing some songs and all of a sudden the world wouldn't be poor anymore. 
A year or two later it was live Earth's turn and we would turn all the devastation we've done to the environment around. Both have disappeared without a trace. Some things in our world seem beyond restoration. And you see why when you look at the final mocking question that Sam Ballot asked in verse 2. Can they bring these stones back to life? Burnt, burnt as they are. This burnt out shell of a city, this, this rubble on a hill, what do they think is going to come of it? It's had its day, it's dead and buried, it's gone, it doesn't come back from there. It's just the way things are. In a city marked by trouble and disgrace and insecurity, especially the insecurity that comes from living under the shadow of death. Our world, our city, is one with only short-lived plans. What else can there be when death stalks this city? San Bellard asks, can you bring these things back to life? That doesn't happen. Well, those of us who know the power of the gospel know there is still hope, even here in this rubble. Death to life is the business our God is in. It is what this city on a hill is built on, his death and resurrection to new life. We are in the business of bringing the dead city to life, of watching our God speak to this city by his word and saying to dead dry bones, live as he does in Jeremiah, of watching God raise up children from these stones as he speaks of in 1 Peter 1 and make them living stones built into his city, his church, his people. This is the business our God is in. But tell that to your family and friends that this is the project you are a part of. Speak, speak of that and it sounds ridiculous. And it does to anyone who has exchanged the truth of God for a lie that we would think it would be worthwhile, that, that we would invest in this project, that we would shape our life around this. But keep looking at the opposition described in chapter 4. That there's something even worse than the ridicule of an unbeliever. And that's when that same scorn comes from within the city itself, or at least seemingly within. Verse 3, meet Tobiah. He's an Ammonite and so in one sense he isn't part of God's people and yet as the book goes on he clearly casts himself as if he is. He's always at the temple where God's people meet with their God. He's even got a room there in the last chapter. He seems to have set up home in the temple. He's in on it. Chapter 6 he has people writing letters for him to Nehemiah speaking of the wonderful things he's doing for God. He's part of this. But Tobiah is just as much an unbeliever as Sanballat. But his is cloaked in religion, in church going. Rather than working side by side with the people we saw in chapter 3, he is side by side with Sanballat. And his unbelief is the most withering of all. Have a look at verse 3. Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, said, What they are building, if even a fox climbed up on it, he would break down their walls of stone. He's got no concept of anything worthwhile being done on the hill. To him it's some flimsy structure with nothing holding it together. The slightest weight would collapse the whole thing. Now how is it that a religious man, a churchgoer, even seemingly a church leader could say this of the city on a hill? Well think for a moment about what he sees when he looks at this project. View things from his perspective just for a moment, this position of religious unbelief. As he looks at a city where God dwells with these people, where he is at the heart of everything we do, he doesn't see that God because he doesn't believe. And so all he sees is a human fellowship, a human project. Pathetic. 
And as he looks upon a city where God is to be worshipped, where he is honoured above all, again, his unbelief frees him from that sort of devotion. And when you take God out of the equation and you, and you worship the next best thing, you're left with you. And so Tobiah's life is committed to his honour and pleasure and power. And as he sees a city where God's word is honoured, as we'll see in chapter 8, to him that word is irrelevant. It sits beneath human words. God's ways submit to our ways. The only thing that would give a city like this robustness and strength is human reason and words, not God's. Without it, the city would collapse under even the lightest argument. What they are building, if even a fox climbed up on it, it would collapse. And let me say, this view, even from within, the church community is rampant in our city and in our world. Unbelief erodes our building. People who seemingly are within the church community and look at this thing and it's pathetic and fragile and collapsing. When I first moved here, the very first email I received from the wider church community that I serve from my diocese was an email telling me about the concept of managed decline, that the city we are building is collapsing, but let's collapse gracefully, slowly. That's not the picture God is giving us here in Nehemiah. God is in the business of building his church, not shutting it down. And realise that that opposition can come locally too. Despite some 170 years of building on the foundation of the Lord Jesus Christ here on this hill, it would be all too easy for us to doubt the effectiveness and sufficiency of that. It would be so easy for the different groups and, and things that we have going on any given week to, to think that we need something more than the word of his grace. I mean, Take, for example, a group like Friday Club, such a great group, serving the senior members of our parish and even beyond our parish, giving them a great environment to get together and enjoy being together of a Friday. And right at its heart is the gospel. Its purpose is proclaiming Christ in conversations, in the short talks that are had in the, the daytime Christianity Explored course that's going on at the moment. That's what it's about. But how easy it would be for us to think that the thing that props that up, that makes it worthwhile, that gives it its strength, are, are the, the games and, and the wonderful lunch and all of those things that adorn the gospel, that adorn the powerful message of Jesus Christ that can take a dead person and bring them back to life that can take a person who is enemy of the cross of Christ and make them friend forever. That's the only thing that can bring change, not lunch, no matter how tasty it is. And same goes for all our groups, youth group, children's work, all these things. There's a lot of scaffolding, if you like, that holds it up, that makes it fun, that makes it a great environment for children and youth to meet, all sorts of resources. But the only thing that can bring change, that can transform a person, is the news of Jesus Christ, not Nintendo. If those things couldn't happen, if we weren't able to provide those things, so be it. But if the gospel goes, well then shut the doors and pack away the games. Remember, God is a master builder. He has laid the perfect foundation stone in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to build on that with the best resources he gives us, his word and prayer. And when such thinking comes from within, when we start to feel that even within ourselves, doubting that God's resources are enough, let us remember he is building what lasts. He is taking dead stones and making them living. 
He is building a church that even the gates of hell will not overcome. And so that's what Nehemiah does. In chapter 4, verses 4 to 6, we see him respond to the unbelieving thoughts and words by once again bringing them to God. He asks God to expose them for what they are, these seemingly weighty human words and arguments. He says to God, show them up to be hollow and deceptive. He prays that God vindicates this project. And so in chapter 4, verse 6, they continue it with even more heart-filled passion than before. The opposition has done nothing to dent the progress. And yet, as the chapter goes on, we see as the city keeps building, as even the passion to build the city builds, so does the opposition. Ridicule hasn't worked and so now it's time for action. Have a look at verse 7. When Sanballat, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Amorites and the men of Ashod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they became very angry. They all plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and to stir up trouble against it. The enemies of the city on this hill surround them. The the Arabs to the south, the Ammonites to the east, the Ashdodites to the west, Sanballat's army in the north, they are completely circled, exposed on this hill. They've come with one purpose, to fight and to bring trouble, to stop the work. And as we look on, knowing that we are about the same project as Nehemiah was, we need to know that we likewise build in an environment surrounded by opposition, both from within and without. We've seen it again and again in the wider church, how even those who seem to be part of us, the Tobias of the world, attack the church. I've got a good friend who's a youth minister in a church in Canada, St John's Shaughnessy. And he and the main minister there, David Short, have seen their project, if you like, closed down or they attempted to. They locked the doors, said they couldn't meet anymore because they were proclaiming the gospel. They've just moved building. That's all that's happened. But the attack came from within. The attack on on people like my friend and David Short and the likes of um, J.I. Packer, who ministers there as well. The attacks will come and they won't all be that far afield. And some of them will come from the outside as well. I was speaking to a friend this week who was talking about his school experience growing up, how as each year passed on, more and more of the Christian festivals and anything to do with the gospel was pushed out. They would celebrate a month of Ramadan, but when it came to Christmas it was called the winter holiday. Christ pushed out, the true king pushed out. And we see it even closer to home. I I saw it just before Christmas with our own playgroup. A church playgroup built on the very foundation that the rest of the church is built on, the Lord Jesus Christ, aiming to proclaim him. Here we were on this hill, on our turf if you like, having a a Christmas service where a very clear and really brilliant uh, explanation of the gospel was given that reached the hearts of these little ones as well as the parents. And I remember speaking to a, a lady afterwards who was greatly offended by this demanding an apology and demanding that she would not hear this sort of thing again. Here, demanding that. Opposition will come. We need to have the guts to be more worried about offending our great and awesome God than his opponents. To be more concerned with pleasing him than pleasing people. To trust that his ways are the best ways, that his welfare for the city, his commitment and compassion for the city will out if we trust him. And these attacks don't just come from flesh and blood. The Bible makes clear that the attacks on this city will come from Satan 
and even from our own sinful nature. 1 Peter 5.8 says that our enemy, the devil, prowls around looking for something to devour, someone to devour. Genesis 4 says sin is crouching at our door, looking for opportunity. And so we must guard against that as well amongst ourselves as we struggle with godliness, as we struggle to treat each other well, as we struggle to be humble before each other. And remember, it always strikes me as fascinating in a baptism service where you've got the tiniest member of our church family, the tiniest builder, if you like, a brand new one. And one of the things that we say to the little ones who are baptised is we say, fight against sin, the world and the devil. Right from the outset we're saying, you will face opposition and you need to fight. And that's the picture Nehemiah is giving us. And so back to his scene that he is describing for us, this, this city surrounded by enemies, committed to stopping the work, whatever it takes. What's the logical response? Fear. You're surrounded, you're feeble, you're fragile, you're exposed. And so that's what Nehemiah finds the people doing, very much afraid. In verses 10 to 12, they start to fear all sorts of things. They say, we're not strong enough for this. You ever felt that? When it comes to the building project we're a part of together, I'm, I'm running out of energy. This is all too much. I remember feeling that way. Just last week I sort of got to the end of a week and I thought, that's about it for me. That's about as much energy as I have to give and, and there was yet another thing to do and I thought, I'm not sure I can do this. And I'm sure you've felt that way again and again as we've been about this work together. We're not strong enough. Especially when you look around as the, the people did and they said, there's just too much rubble. I can't see how this is actually making much of a difference. There's just rubble everywhere. And it's easy to feel that in lots of ways, whether it be an inconsistent small group that you work hard and then no one turns up. It could be all sorts of things. And then there's just the fear that the cost is just getting too high. Sort of like an auction where you're bidding for a house and you know you've got your limit and it's starting to go well beyond that and it all gets very uncomfortable. That's what's happening here as they build. At first it was great, this wonderful project. That was the picture in Nehemiah 3, wasn't it? But the more you build, the more the opposition grows and the more tired you get and the more it costs and you start to feel afraid. This project was good when it was carols, choirs and candlelight when it was picnics and pantomime, but this is getting serious and it's starting to cost me. It's bringing me into conflict with my family and I love them. It's seeing me isolated increasingly at work or in amongst social circles. The cost is beyond my threshold. You look around at the mounting opposition and your lack of strength and the sheer rubble of the city around you and you start to wonder why. The only logical response is fear, isn't it? Wrong, says Nehemiah. Nehemiah says that the one who sees things clearly responds exactly the opposite way with no fear. Have a look at verse 13. He gathers his people together, the same people that were building in chapter 3, exhausted as they are, surrounded, buckling under the cost, and he takes action, but not the action of unbelief or fear, but confident hope. He starts to post builders, small clans, families on the lowest parts of the wall, the exposed parts, and he doesn't just put them there to build, he puts them there to fight. He equips them with weapons. Weapons at the ready, brothers and sisters in Christ, side by side as they were in chapter 3, but now a fellowship of fighters. And remember, they're just regular workers. These are goldsmiths, perfume makers, a man and his daughters, side by side. 
And then he gives a short but brilliant speech in verse 14. Don't be afraid of them. Why? Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight. It's amazing, isn't it? In the moments of fear we can lose sight of our great strength, our shield and our great reward as he calls himself our God. Lose sight of the very reason he has called us, the task he has given us and we shrink back. Far too easily we are scared by opposition or the hard work or the cost that comes from being a disciple of the Lord Jesus and it's because we forget. And so Nehemiah says, remember the Lord and fight. See, our job on this hill is not just to build this city but to defend it from any attack. God's people aren't about picking fights but we don't lose any on this hill. We are a fellowship of builders and now a fellowship of fighters. And you see in verses 16 to 18, God gives us absolutely everything we need to defend this city. He gives us his armour and a sword. And recently as a church family we've been looking at Ephesians 6 and we saw that armour, the very armour God walks into our world with. God says you can have that armour too. The belt of truth, the breastplate of righteousness, feet fitted with peace, a shield of faith, a helmet of salvation, all of that is ours. And then of course there is the sword he gives us the sword of the Spirit, the very word of God, the only weapon I will ever need for whatever may come and try and take this hill. A word that brings the dead to life. A word that can demolish any argument. A word that stands above and speaks into our culture. A word that judges and redeems. And every time we gather on this hill, every time we gather in our homes or just one to one, God swings that mighty sword among us and fights for his city. So don't be afraid. Remember the Lord and fight. And as we close, see what Nehemiah says is at stake in this fight. See why it's worth it. He looks his people in the eye in verse 14 and he tells them what they're fighting for. The name of the city and even more than that, the peace and security of who? Your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your homes. That's what we fight for. And every generation that will follow. Nehemiah says it is our turn to build and defend this city. The city of Sheffield cannot afford for this city not to be built and defended. And so do you want to build a city on this hill? Know that it won't happen without cost, great cost. You and I need to be about counting that cost. The great lie that Satan tells us is that we can build a city on a hill from a position of comfort and effortless ease We build on the foundation of Jesus and every stone that is laid on top of him follows his pattern. The one who was opposed by Satan, opposed by religious unbelievers, opposed by the world, abandoned by his friends, flogged, beaten, bloodied, strung up, punished, killed. He says, you want to build side by side with me? Then take up your cross and follow. And if you want to know if it's worth it, go back and see the names of chapter 3 this fellowship of builders who built and fought for this city. A few names, a happy band of men, women and children and then flick across to chapter 7 and see generation upon generation upon generation that lived and worshipped in that city because of them, that found peace in that city, that found freedom from shame and hope because of that fellowship of builders and fighters who counted the cost and stayed I remember when I was in year six, I had a scripture teacher by the name of Mr Broadhead. 
It's not a great name for a teacher. He uh, came under a lot of fire for that. But even more than that, every single lesson we have with him once a week, he is just hit with ridicule from moment one to the end of the class. He was actually a good teacher and he prepared well. He had some great things to say. And at the time, I wasn't a Christian. I was with him. I was joining in this ridicule. And I remember after almost a year of this, he stood up near the end of the year and he said, you know what, I'm going to be back here next year doing the same thing. And I'm not upset by what you've said because God is worth it. And some of you will listen and that is going to make it worthwhile. As you look ahead to 2009 and what we are building together, what we are fighting for, see why it is worth it. See that you are fighting for your brothers, your sons, your daughters, your wives and your homes. And fix your eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross. Consider him who endured such opposition from sinful men so that you will not grow weary or lose heart. Let's pray.